Nation. Providing you with the practical tools and expert knowledge to optimize your strength, health and mindset inside and out. With your host, Steve Katarzy. Welcome back. Now, genuinely, welcome back. I appreciate every single one of you that listen or are repeat listeners of our show. I work diligently to try and make this show of value to anyone who chooses to give their time away. And I appreciate you giving a chunk of time away to listen to our shows. They are a deep dive, but hopefully a ton of value too. And today is no exception. I'm really, really excited to share with you the conversation I had with the founder and president of Western A Price Foundation, Sally Fallon Morell. She set up the foundation in 1999 and is considered one of the foremost global leaders in uh, nutrient-dense ancestral living, really through respecting and returning us to our traditional diet. And I really think she's driven by a truly noble and caring cause. And this foundation, the Western A. Price Foundation, is held in high regard by global nutritional leaders, often cited as the definitive source of traditional nutritional wisdom. And the foundation itself showcases and extends the brilliant, one-of-a-kind and unrepeatable work of Weston A. Price, a dentist back in the day who travelled the world observing the contrast in diet and health of indigenous tribes to modern Western cultures. He performed observational studies, nutritional testing, took thousands of photos of indigenous people, and hypothesised that the departure from traditional nutritional principles was the leading cause to the health issues that we were, and quite frankly, are seeing today. He is most famous for documenting his findings in the book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. So in this interview, Sally does a great job of introducing us to the key principles of a nutrient-dense diet through describing Weston A. Price's observations, talking about the myriad of issues in the modern diet and guidelines. We'll get into a bunch of those specifically as well as placing a positive emphasis on our need to embrace saturated fat. Who'd have thought it? But most of all, the thing that really hit me was how Sally argued so strongly for our need to take full responsibility as adults on the health of our children and just how important a nutrient-dense diet is to their development from preconception through to being a young adult. And it's our responsibility to own that. This was a heartwarming and convincing plea, backed up by tons of logic and science that you can go ratify for yourself. We cover off quite a bit in this conversation. As always, try and document as much as we can in the show notes. So head over to there if you want a rundown of where this is going to go and the things we're going to touch on. But hey, let's get straight into it. I think you're going to love it, enjoy it. It is the one and only Sally Fallon from the Western A. Price Foundation. Adaptation. So, Sally, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the Adaptation podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I tell you what, I've I've kind of been looking around and engaging in the nutrition space properly since founding Adaptation. So we're talking just shy of two years. Western A Price just kept coming up 
and up and up. <laughs> it's everywhere. And the more you dig into ancestral living and paleo, it just seems to be constantly referenced. So to speak to one of the founding members and president of okay. Western A. Price Foundation is is a privilege. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. We, we keep keep moving on, you know, we just try to keep at it because uh, people are, are really searching and desperate for accurate information on how to be healthy. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And you know, the more the more I dig into this, the more I keep going back to our, our evolutionary biological preferences. And I think you guys stand for that strongly. So why don't we give everyone a little bit of a background? So hopefully, many of our followers have, like me, heard of Western A. Price before <laughs> and the foundation, but let's assume they haven't. How about you can oh. give us a, a quick high level of you, the individual, the author, uh, the speaker, <laughs> as well as um, giving us a bit of a feel for Western A Price, the foundation. And in one minute, right? <laughs> as long so, as you need. <laughs> so um, I I really started off as just a housewife who liked to cook. And I love to cook. And I have uh, children. I had four children. And as I was raising my family, uh, and cooking for them, I happened to read this book by Weston Price, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And it showed the wonderful photographs of traditional people with their broad faces, naturally straight teeth. And he basically was talking about nutrient-dense diets, diets that included organ meats, fat, um, things like fish eggs, um, you know, all the most nutrient-dense parts of the animal. And uh, that kind of convinced me to keep going. I liked French cooking, so we ate lots of eggs and butter and cream and whole milk and so forth. Uh, And this was a time when the voices for low fat were getting very shrill. And in 1990, our US government decreed that children should be on low fat diets from the age of two. So when, when parents took their uh, children for the two-year-old checkup, they were told no butter, no eggs, feed them margarine, you know, um, they can have applesauce, but, you know, no cream, so to speak. And uh, so that was the year I got an I- the idea to write my book, Nourishing Traditions, which came out in 1999. And it is basically a roadmap for putting Dr. Price's principles into practice in, in a modern household. And then um, my husband and I in 1999 in a other people founded the Weston A. Price Foundation. Just to keep his message alive, we felt that um, not, enough, not enough people knew about him, that we needed an organization that could comment on all of these studies coming out and counter the propaganda for the low-fat diet. Great. Fantastic. So pr- prior to you putting that book out, you wasn't into nutrition, you wasn't in that space specifically? Well, I, I was. I was, you know, I wanted my kids to be healthy, and I qu- kind of sporadically read books on nutrition. But it was Dr. Price's book that really made sense to me and confirmed that what I was doing was uh, the right way to go. And by the way, it's interesting. I needed braces. Uh, all my siblings needed braces. My parents did not need braces. We all needed braces. And then with my kids, none of them needed braces. So. That, you know, this needing the braces, having the narrow face, that's what Dr. Price called physical degeneration. And I was able to turn that around uh, with my own family. So because it worked so well, I proved, you know, that this is the right kind of diet. Uh, 
you know, that spurred me onwards. Other people need to know about this diet. So <laughs> that's what keeps me going. Okay. That's fun. That's a fantastic um, story. And the founding of the, the foundation, I mean, was that particularly challenging? And what's the, the journey of, of the creation of that founding been like over the last, gosh, what, almost 20 years? You know, it was, I always say, whatever I do is a step into insanity. I, I really didn't think about it. I just thought we need this organization. Um, I had a little bit of money that I could use to set it up. And we, we put a card in the back of Nourishing Tradition, anyone interested in joining this foundation. So the cards just started coming in, you know, hundreds a week. And that's how we started our database. And we started we started having a conference and we had educational materials and then the journal, which has come out every year for 20 years. So um, then people would tease me and say, well, you've created this monster. And it's kind of true. I, I've created this <laughs> entity that I can't get away from now. <laughs> but that's okay. I love my work. Uh, I just love um, the feedback especially the feedback from parents who have followed our advice, uh, eaten a nutrient-dense diet before conception, at least six months before conception, followed our advice for uh, pregnancy diet, nursing diet, and for their growing children. And you know what, uh, Steve, these children are, I mean, it's worth every effort and all the time that you put into it because these children are just absolutely wonderful. They're smart, they're happy, uh, attractive, you know, loving. It's just, it's worth all the effort. It's worth learning. It's worth making the effort to get the good foods and to prepare them. I'm a father of two beautiful children, and we've been obsessing about nutrient density for them for the last couple of years. Uh, I would love to dug into the kind of the, the children nutrition thing in a mode because I think it's important and I think we uh there's a lot that we have to push against uh but let's let's cover that in a second so okay okay, so um anything else around the foundation in terms of what you do now so I know know you've put out quite a few books and quite popular books as well um that you're a speaker of course um you know you know the the figurehead of this foundation what does your life look like today being the president <laughs> of Western Price Foundation? Well, I, I must say that in the beginning, I pretty much did everything. I kept the books. Uh, I did have somebody help me with data entry, but I kept the books. I did everything in the journal, the ads, the terrible proofreading, everything. Uh, but now I do have a lot of help. I have help with the journal. We have a, a three-person office with a staff of three. So I, uh, I still... Every day, I, there's something having to do with the foundation that, you know, I, I try to take care of. So, uh, fortunately, that's a lot easier for me. Uh, as you know, uh, my husband and I now have a farm, uh, which we've had for 10 years now. And we try to raise nutrient-dense food. We do raw milk, raw cheese, uh, woodlands pork, um, beef, um, pastured eggs, and chickens, and turkeys. I was telling you That's amazing. this morning I was out getting gathering up the turkeys who'd gone into the subdivision next door. <laughs> so on the farm, you know, there's always something. There's always a surprise. It's but I still have plenty of time to, uh, you know, work with the foundation. I have a blog now, Nourishing Traditions, which I write for. And um, I've done a number of books and hoping to do some more books. 
You're a true leader, Sally. You're a true leader. Um, how how big is the foundation? Um, any metrics to give uh, people a sense of the followership? Yes. So we have about 12,000 members, and that number has been pretty steady for a number of years now. We'd love to have 50 or 100,000 members. We could really be a force to be reckoned with, uh, with that many members. Uh, there's a lot of movements that pull people away from us. Of course, the constant propaganda for the plant-based diet. And I think some of the carnivore and caveman diet things also uh, has taken members away. But that's okay. We keep plugging on. Uh, we, of course, do the journal. We do an annual conference. And we have a lot of great little flyers that are for education. And if people have just heard about the foundation on this show, they can go to our website, westonaprice.org. And under About Us, you'll find brochures. And you can see these flyers and then you can order them. Or if you become a member, you get one of each to start off with. Cool. Fantastic. Great. Well, that that should hopefully give us a baseline for the rest of the discussion. Thank you, Sally. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the question I, I kind of wanted to start with in terms of digging into both the traditions, the principles and, uh, the foundation itself, or at least Western A price is there seems to be two camps in regards to Western A price. There's mm -hmm. a lot of people that wax lyrical about his, you know, forward thinking, mm -hmm. uh, interesting, compelling description uh, and documentation of indigenous tribes. And he hypothesized why, you know, they're in, in, in good health. And he, of course, called out some of the issues within uh, Western cultures that may be causing a decline in our health and our, uh, you know, facial structures, our teeth, etc. And it's compelling to read. However, there's also another camp of, you know, more traditionally educated scientists or nutritionists who, uh, with a, you know, a very strong kind of science and data perspective say you know he he's overreaching he was evangelizing his own bias um, there isn't really good strong data to support his observations and perhaps people are being a slightly too dogmatic with the stuff that he spoke about and is of course propagated through the foundation so i just wanted to get your perspective on that because you know i'd like to reference western a price the foundation more Sometimes I feel that uh, people that are in that camp of hard science will dismiss it just because of what I've just said. How do you how do you think about that? Well, well, Dr. Price was a scientist. He was a dentist, and his um, studies on tooth decay and dental deformities in traditional cultures. He founded, um, you know, cavities and measured dental uh, facial structure. Um, these were published in peer-reviewed journals of his day. Um, so, um, you know, he, he was definitely a scientist and I think also he brought these foods home and measured them for nutrient density and, uh, compared the amount of nutrients in these traditional diets with the nutrients in the, uh, modern American diet. So this is science. It was the, um, you know, le leading kind of science of his day. And, you know, I don't think you can have any criticism of that. There's a couple of very good articles on our site by Chris Masterjohn under his blog about Weston Price as a scientist. Of course, there is going to be pushback against Dr. Price. There was in his day. For example, he was asked to endorse a bread. I believe it was Wonder Bread. 
because they added uh, vitamins and minerals to the bread. And he said, this is not a whole grain. You can't just add synthetic vitamins and minerals and expect it to be any good. So he went right against the food industry. And he also um, spoke out against the practice of fluoridation. Uh, his organization, the National Dental Association, opposed fluoridation because he said, I, I saw all these people with perfect teeth and they didn't have fluoridated water. So he said, it's not the fluoride. So he came up against two powerful forces. And by the time of his death, he was persona non grata. He was referred to as a quack. And uh, this is what happens when you tell the truth. It happens to everybody when you tell the truth. So um, I, I think that when you kind of scratch the surface, a lot of this opposition is coming from the food industry um, and, you know, these big entrenched uh, industries that are promoting certain things that are actually not good for us. I think you're, I think you're right. I, I also think there is, um, there's a lot of flaw, flawed um, process in nutritional science it's very difficult to do for oh, one yes. you know yes. human subjects are <laughs> fantastically complex and hard to manage through the long term extremely expensive to do things properly and as such i think a lot of the foundations of nutritional science are things we describe as facts because they're in journals and they're you know they're clinical trials or, or observational data i think we just have to question a lot of the, the quote unquote science and whilst there's been an agenda, yeah. I was yeah. just going to say, once the whilst observations per se can be dismissed as merely observations, observations are relatively powerful because <laughs> we are describing what happens when people do things through the long term. Okay, we haven't got them through a clinical trial, but we can see their their traditions, their their practices, their nutrition is causing or not causing. Uh, you know their their their, their life uh, circumstances, their health. I think that can't well, be dismissed. Well, I, yeah, and you know you can't do Dr. Price's work today because these populations have disappeared. Mm. But Price was not the only one. Now Price was the only one who methodically counted cavities in these people and published that. But the, you can name dozens of explorers and anthropologists who commented on the good health. Of these people on their traditional diet, um, going going back many hundreds of years. So uh, he wasn't the only one who was making these observations. And what were some of these observations to bring everyone up to speed? Some of his most compelling statements with regards to traditional um, nutrition, as well as Western um, food right. and processed goods. Well, I think. The first observation was on the health of the people. When you, when he would come into a tribe or village, he was struck, like everyone was struck, by the beautiful teeth. Wide and straight as piano keys, as uh, one person said. And they had beautiful teeth, uh, did not suffer from tooth decay. Okay, so that's one thing. Another thing that everybody commented on when they first came in contact with these people was that childbirth was so easy. They didn't seem to be in any pain. They didn't have, you know, children get stuck in there. Um, this was a universal observation. Uh, so childbirth was easy. The There wasn't a lot of um, death in childbirth or in, in babies. They, they knew how to take care of their babies, and the babies were healthy. People commented on their physique. Uh, 
we have, for example, many, many observers in who went to Australia and that was relatively late when they went to Australia, you know, in the um, late 1700s, early 1800s. Again, commenting on the beautiful teeth, the ease of childbirth, the fine physiques of everybody they saw. And finally, Dr. Price uh, commented on there, they seem to be free of degenerative disease and even of infectious disease. He said the Africans who are living and they're eating their traditional diet did not get elephantiasis. They did not get malaria. Um, they seem to be completely immune to these diseases. Okay, so that's the, you know, the observations that people made. So uh, what were they eating? Well, first and foremost, these are people, uh, they're not civilized people. When they kill an animal, unlike us, we just eat the muscle meats. They ate the whole animal. They ate the organ meats. They plucked out the kidneys and ate the kidneys raw. <laughs> they um, ate the fat. They ate the blood. They ate the liver and the brain. They ate the marrow. In fact, they could tap on the femur bone and open it up and the marrow would come out. So these organ meats are 10 to 100 times more nutrient dense than the muscle meats. So I think one of the first things we need to do in modern culture is learn to make awful taste good, as I often say. And that's the pate, the terrines, the liverwurst. Europe does a, lot, a much better job at this than we do. Um, Europe has all kinds of sausages and, you know, concoctions that include organ meats in a way that makes them taste good and not a big yuck factor. <laughs> now, you know, here in the States, it's actually illegal to put liver in sausage or organ meats in sausage. Wow. That's, consider that's considered adulteration. So I think uh, that that's one thing that we need to learn to do in this country is put the organ meats back in sausage. Actually, there's one um, there's one exception to that. I know that the boudin, which is the sausage in Louisiana, is made with all the organ meats in it and the blood, and that's still allowed. So that would be so a good thing to they, revive. <laughs> so they plucked out organ meats uh, and instinctively you think that's just because they knew that there was great nutrition there to be had they instinctively knew this um, and then they also would uh, a lot of things were cooked they would make a big kind of stew and and cook all these organ meats they knew to cook the bones even the american indians cooked the bones to make broth you know that's a big um, theme of ours but they also ate grains. Now, Dr. Price didn't talk about this very much. This is something that we've added, but uh, a universal practice among traditional cultures was to um, prepare the grains in such a way that made them more digestible, um, uh, that liberated the nutrients in the grains. And that was by soaking, sprouting, sourdough, et cetera. And so the, the reason we get in trouble with grains today is we're not preparing them properly. Mm. And so, so it was quite common to have wheat or grains generally across these traditional cultures? Uh, wheat in certain parts of the world, uh, rye and others, oats in the northern part of Europe. Uh, wheat was a common grain in China, surprisingly, and uh, or rice. So all through the temperate areas, uh, People grew grains. Even in Australia, these so-called Paleolithic people were growing grains. The early settlers saw fields of as large as a thousand acres of millet 
growing and they were, it was harvested with their stone knives and they made haystacks and everything just like Europe. <laughs> so um, it is a real myth that the Paleolithic people did not eat grains. Certainly the Australian Aborigines were eating grains and we have, they, scientists have found grains in the campfires of Paleolithic people. So. But our, our, our issue today is, is our process, our production, Yes. The quality yeah. of that is causing issues because I, I know there's a lot of connection, whether it be, you know, William Davis. I mean, there's so many authors that describe uh, gluten being a major problem for Western societies today with autoimmunity, you know, driving up obesity, you know, just driving up modern disease. Yeah. Um, well, it is. And again, it is. you put it down yeah. to kind of processing. Yes, processing, uh, processing, and the way. Um, um, you know, it's prepared the way it's grown. You know, we have bred wheat that has a lot more gluten than the old fashioned wheat. And then we do things like extrusion, which is to make the breakfast cereals. And this really damages the proteins in the grains. So they're very hard to digest and can cause autoimmune disease. And plus we, we eat a ton of wheat based, yeah, gluten based food, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and we refine it. We, um, you know, make pasta out of the carbohydrate part without any of the minerals or vitamins in it. Okay. No, no, no. That's a really interesting observation in terms of uh, it's kind of almost a, a paleolithic backdrop because, as you say, that is suggested to have only happened kind of like at the agricultural revolution around 10,000 or so years ago. Okay. Um, well, and then the industrial revolution. So in the industrial revolution, uh, we learned to – we figured out how to do this extrusion process to make cornflakes and Cheerios and, and the big, and how to refine sugar, of course, but the big change starting in about 1920 was the advent of the industrial seed oils, which we've never had in our diets before. Mm. And it just seems to be a universal law amongst any of the kind of leaders in nutrition these days that seed oils are probably to be avoided. Is that your position too? Oh, absolutely. Um, but um, they keep coming back in. I mean, in conventional nutrition, they will not back off of the suggestion to use these polyunsaturated oils and the demonization of saturated fat and saturated animal fat. And these seed oils, I mean, it's it's about oxidization, trans fat, omega-6, yeah. omega just generally a cheaper product, hence the reason they're used doused and used for pretty much every processed and packaged food that you can purchase Absolutely. and it's just uh it's the the composition of that fat that our body's not used to is that really our, our, oh. our main struggle yeah they're they're toxic to the body and i would say even if you cook at home you're encouraged to cook in these uh oils so the liquid oils are very fragile this is a, a key thing that people need to understand the saturated fats are stable and this is what your body needs, and there's nothing wrong with them. You, they're essential for good health. But the liquid oils, we have never had a situation where we've had 30% of our calories as these liquid polyunsaturated oils. And this causes a, a huge uh, imbalance um, on the a cellular level. And our, in the end, our cells and our mitochondria just don't work because we have too much of the wrong kind of fat in our bodies. Not to mention the fact that because of the processing, these fats are rancid and they break down into uh, these very toxic breakdown products called aldehydes, which cause cancer and 
do all sorts of damage in the body. Yeah. Let's talk about good fat. <laughs> um, because I, I've heard from you and others um, when you observe indigenous tribes, traditional cultures, is that now they, they seem to be fat hunters. They embrace yes. fat. Let's talk a bit about that. Yes. Well, they won't. Uh, if an animal doesn't have enough fat on it, it's called rubbish. This is. <laughs> They did an art. I've read an article about uh, Australia and the Aboriginal people, and and they hunt at times of the year when the animals will be at fattest. So if a certain flower is in bloom, the kangaroos are fat, and then they will hunt the kangaroo. Uh, if they kill a kangaroo that's not fat, it's thrown away. It's just rubbish. They don't want it. Uh, they never ate lean meat. They always wanted the fat. Fat. Uh, they ate the meat, but only with the fat. So. And this leads me to my big, big concern about the paleo diet and some of these carnivore diets. They're telling you to eat lean meat. And no traditional person would ever eat lean meat. They knew that the lean meat would make them sick. And that's because you need that fat to, uh, to actually process the protein. And if you don't have the fat, the protein will be poisonous, toxic. You'll get uh, protein toxicity. So, so yes, the meat fats, um, pigs are a wonderful source of fat. It's the yolks in the egg. It's the full fat milk. And then, of course, we're coming to my favorite fat, which is butter. And when you think about it, butter is the fat in nature for the growth and development of all mammals. It's in all mammalian milk. It is the fat for development and growth. There can't be anything wrong with it, you know. It's the ideal fat for children, but it's also the ideal fat for, for adults. It has a, an amazing fatty acid profile with all kinds of unusual fatty acids that uh, are important to us that we can't get anywhere else. It's uh, very rich in something called arachidonic acid, which we need for our brains and for healthy skin. Uh, and it's got all the fat-soluble vitamins in it and actually a lot of minerals in, in butter as well. So we're, we're the butter eaters here in this house. <laughs> well, I, I, and, and again, I love this butter is... as well. And we, we get access to Kerrygold Irish uh, organic butter. It's just delicious. Yes. Uh, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. But then you hear others, Sally, that say they're not too keen on too much refined fats. And I think they, when people say refined fats, they're talking about mm -hmm. rendered down fats or, mm -hmm. or fats mm -hmm. such as butter and coconut oil. And you should be having more saturated fat you know, from that, from the animal itself, as opposed, as opposed to this can rendered down format. And then others again would say, should humans be having bovine milk? You know, what's, well, you what's know, the logic? I've been in this field for a number of years now. I've actually never seen a baby turn into a cow. <laughs> bovine milk. Uh, the, the cultures, well, first of all, let's go back to the fat question. Yes, you eat the fat with your meat, but these cultures all, rendered the fat to save it. Uh, just to give you an example, the pemmican made by the American Indians, they, they rendered all the fat, melted it down. Uh, they took the lean meat and pounded it till it was a powder, put it in these leather bags, and then heated the fat and poured it into the bags. So this was a practice everywhere. Making butter is a practice in all dairying cultures because it's a really great storage food. So there's, there's nothing wrong with separating out the fat so that you can have more fat. That's what uh, traditional people actually did. 
so now where were we about milk? <laughs> so one of our most controversial issues is our campaign for real milk. We advocate raw milk, not pasteurized, raw whole milk from pastured cows. That's what we mean by real milk. And uh, this is a splendid, healthy food. The cultures in the world that do have herd animals are noted for their, um, their great height. They're, they're usually tall uh, and they're, they're wonderful teeth, of course. So anthropologists are agreed that having herds and having milk uh, gives these people a, a real nutritional advantage. What about when people say, okay, lactose, casein, sensitivities to both, um, yeah. you know, we, we shouldn't be having dairy. <laughs> well, I beg to differ. Um, it's just such a, I mean, you, that means you don't believe in breastfeeding, right? Okay. So, yeah, no, uh, no, no. yeah, yeah. similar, of course, of course, yeah. So lacti lactose casein in raw milk, these are not a problem. Raw milk from cows and animals fed the right type of food. Uh, these are not a problem, and uh, they're they're healthy uh, sugars and healthy fats. Mm. I mean, we can't we can't deny that there seems to be many people that suggest they're lactose intolerant or sensitive, and have some allergic reaction to lactose. Uh, I, I hear a well, lot well, about we... these kind of crossover sensitivities, mm -hmm. though, that are caused by leaky gut and other foods that are making them yeah. sensitive to these compounds. Is that kind of where you would go with that kind of rebuttal? Well, the first thing I would say, always I say to people who say they're sensitive, uh, try raw milk. Don't start by drinking a big glass of cold raw milk, but start with a couple of tablespoons of room temperature milk and gradually increase that every day uh, so you get used to it. And your gut gets used to it. And uh, we find that over 80% of people who say they can't tolerate milk are do fine on raw milk. Um, commercial milk is a poison. It's a poison because of how they feed the cows. And then the horrendous processing, very rapid heating, especially in ultra-pasteurized milk, mm -hmm. that completely destroys the proteins and does render them allergenic. There's no question that uh, commercial conventional milk, it causes allergies in almost everybody. It's very toxic. Okay, so you agree that, uh, you know, kind of commercial milk, that milk that most people have access to is probably not great and could cause issues. Absolutely. In fact, I, I wouldn't give it to my child. When my kids were growing, um, I could get raw milk for a while and then they kind of cracked down on it in California. And I just gave my children cream cream with a little water in it, <laughs> because at least um, it wasn't ultra pasteurized and at least it wasn't homogenized. So you guys have, have actually campaigned for this and you have a database of at least US raw milk providers, is that right? And and we also have uh, UK providers. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's not, I don't know how complete it is, but yes. And when we started, we had only 37 sources of raw milk in the country, and now there are over 2,000 with lots of deliveries and drop-off points. So it's pretty, raw milk is pretty much available anywhere if you look for it. Well, I, I must admit, Sally, I, I wouldn't know where to look, but I'll, I'll start by looking at your website. We yeah. have, we have, we went through this journey. We, we went yeah. non-dairy for a good long time, just going almond milk because we assumed it's going to be better for us. We've gone full circle. We started introducing dairy back in, no issues whatsoever. But we went from, you know, the normal milk to A2 milk, um, 
I then found goat's milk because, you know, we've got mm-hmm. quite a lot of goats here and that seemed pretty nice. And we've now stumbled across um, the Channel Islands. They have good cows and they good processes and they make, you know, proper full fat, non-homogenized milk. The stuff that kind of curdles at the top a little bit because it's still, you know, because it hasn't been homogenized. It is mm-hmm. delicious. It's full fat. Yeah. You know, it's how nature intended it. However, it yes. is still pasteurized. And you would say that pasteurization is is an issue. Uh, yes, because uh, the, the proteins in milk are very fragile. They're not like meat proteins, which actually become more digestible when you cook them. But the proteins in milk uh, break down, um, get warped and distorted. So in raw milk, there is a protein or an enzyme that helps you absorb and metabolize every single vitamin and mineral in the milk. And these are uh, changed by the heat, heat process. So I think you're really better off with raw milk. And I know there's a lot available in the UK. I'll take a look. I'll take a look. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested. Uh, people, I, I did watch a documentary once saying, you know, people, you know, lobbying against raw milk because it's dangerous uh, oh, because of the pasteurization, uh, you know, offers mm-hmm. the benefit of removing bacteria, as mm-hmm. I understand. What, what's your response to that? Well, we have looked very carefully into this and the uh, danger of raw milk is hugely exaggerated. Uh, raw milk contains components that actually kill pathogens. It contains good bacteria. And I, I contend that it's one of the safest foods in the food supply. Um, you know, since they've been keeping records in the late 1960s, there hasn't been a single death from raw milk in this country. No other food can make that claim. Only raw milk. So, you know, those are the facts. Propaganda. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's kind of... Um round out the, the the fat piece so i've heard you speak about and others you know like nina ty schultz and so forth um many people actually about you know the benefits of saturated fat and the demonization of saturated fat over the last 70 years as well as cholesterol um what's your what's your play your or your argument for saturated fat yes well it has been demonized starting in about 1913 I actually give the whole history of this and all the chemistry and everything in my, in my book, Nourishing Fats. Uh, I worked with a wonderful lipid chemist for many years, and um, what she explained to me and showed me in the textbooks, uh, saturated fats are essential for many, many processes in the body. In fact, every process, hormone production, um, you know, cell membranes, uh, immune system, protection against cancer. That, uh, lung function, by the way, you, your lungs cannot work without saturated fats. And because saturated fats are so critical to health, your body has a backup plan. In case you don't eat enough saturated fats, your body makes saturated fats out of carbohydrates. So if you're avoiding saturated fats, uh, you will crave carbohydrates because you need them. And of course, this is exactly what the food industry wants. They want you to mm-hmm. crave carbohydrates. Uh, some of the most dangerous diets are the ones that tell you to eat lean meat and no grains or carbs because you will get very sick if you can actually follow this diet. Um, most people can't, but um, you absolutely need saturated fats for your body to work. And if you refuse to eat them, uh, then you're going to need a lot of carbohydrates. And it just doesn't seem, it doesn't make sense that something that tastes so good <laughs> that, well, is, that is part, part of yeah. 
yeah. you know, our food system for as long as we can remember, as you go back millions yeah. of years, yeah. It, yeah. How, how can something that we've basically evolved to eat all of a sudden be so bad? And when I say all of a sudden, I know it's 70 years, but that's a blip in our yes, evolutionary exactly. history. Well, it was the, you know, they figured out how to take cottonseed oil, which when they squeeze it out of the seed is just a smelly black gunk. Uh, they figured out how to clean it up, and then they figured out how to harden it to imitate lard and butter. And that's when the big campaign against lard and butter began. Mm. Uh, I tell the whole history of this in Nourishing Fats. And it was a brilliant advertising campaign, which enlisted the help of doctors and senators and university researchers and so forth. They all became corrupted by the vegetable oil money. And there's so much money to be made in vegetable oils uh, because they're so cheap to make. And then I can't help but to think, you know, there, there are a few things at play here, Sally, right? You've got obviously the, the profits being one, uh, whether it be uh, carbohydrate, cheap carbohydrate, yes. long shelf life foods, yes. uh, processed yeah. seed oils, as well as obviously the I think kind of the vegan or vegetarian agenda, which, you know, as as I read more about, has been going on for at least a hundred years, you know, from the Seventh day Adventist and 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 you know, through Kellogg's, et cetera. So there seems to be a number of things at play that, you know, allowed our nutritional guidelines to to look the way they do now, quite frankly. Um What's the, the most concerning yeah. thing you have around, you know, our, our current guidelines? Well, they're genocidal. <laughs> uh, you will not have another generation of people if you eat that way. You absolutely need the animal foods for fertility and uh, for the growth of children. And um, we get so many sad cases coming to us where the parents were convinced that the plant-based, the vegetarian, or even vegan diet was what was good for their children. And these children are don't thrive. And we, there's even been cases, I'm sure you've heard of them, where parents have gone to jail for child mm -hmm. abuse for feeding a vegetarian or vegan diet to their children. And of course, the industry just loves the plant-based diet. There is so much more profit in a plant-based diet than a animal-based diet. I'll give you a, an example. My son's a chef. One of my boys is a chef. And he said that if, he said, mom, if you order a steak in a restaurant, Half the price of that meal is for the food, for the steak and, you know, everything that goes with it. If you order a vegetarian meal, it's more like 25%. And if you order a muffin, only 15% of the cost of your meal is for the food. So you can see the difference in profit if you buy, order a steak or a muffin, <laughs> And, and it I, makes complete yeah. sense to me, Sally. But for some reason, many people go, you know, profits, profit, end of the day, right? It doesn't matter what the supermarkets sell, whether it's the meat, the dairy, the cheese, mm -hmm. the fish, or the vegetable products, or the, you know, the fake vegetable products, you know, the mm -hmm. you know, fake meat stuff. It's all money. And I'm like, no, it isn't. You know, there, there's a lot more money to be made in foods that have a longer shelf life, that use cheaper ingredients, and use these processed oils. Well, here's a good example, butter. It takes three gallons of milk to make a pound of butter, okay? Now, even if the industry is paying their ridiculously low price to farmers, which is $1.30 a gallon, uh, that's uh, uh, one, two, three, four dollars of, of um, you know, Margin. materials, of materials, four dollars of materials to make a pound of butter, 
Whereas if they're making a pound of margarine, the materials cost pennies. So, and, and because margarine and spreads are so cheap to make, they have a lot of money left over for advertising. And of course, you can make millions of different products, right? Um, you, that the yes. versatility of marketing, advertising, and reinventing animal-based nutrition is just much less, right? It doesn't last as long. It's, it's a natural product. You can't you know, change it into a million different things. Um, it's just not as industry-friendly. No. Now, the way the industry would like to make money on butter is by putting it in ice cream because they make a lot more profit on that butter fat if it's in ice cream. So they don't mind if you uh, are starved for fats all day long on their ridiculous dietary guidelines. Uh, if you go to the freezer at nine o'clock at night and eat a quart of ice cream, because then they'll make a lot more money on that butter fat. Mm. It's, it's quite saddening as you allow, allow your mind to have these thought experiments and start to see the, the reality of our food industry and the, the guidelines that go with it for what it is. What are yes. your thoughts on um, the nutritious value of fruits and vegetables? Because, of course, for the last, as, as long as I can remember, it's always been that's, that's where nutrition is. That's the yeah. goodness, well, right? If you can do good for your kids, you know, you're going to condition them to stop avoiding the broccoli. You're going to get them having the salads. You get them having a full plate of veggies and get five to ten portions a healthy, day. Yeah. And then they'll be healthy. Yeah. Is that legit? No, no. Nutri uh, fruits and vegetables, as nice it is, as it is to have them in our diets, it's actually a modern miracle that we can have these things in our diet every day. Uh, they are not nutrient-dense foods. Uh, just for example, you need 40 carrots to get the same amount of calcium that you could get in a glass of milk. Who can eat 40 carrots? Or you need, uh, you know, 10 cups of broccoli or whatever to get the same amount of magnesium that you'd get in a, a serving of meat. So you have to eat lots more of these vegetables and fruits to get the nutrients that you get much more easily from the animal foods. I always say people don't realize what the true purpose of fruits and vegetables are, and that is as a vehicle for butter. So... <laughs> So when you cook your beans, you put a lot of melted butter on those beans. Uh, you uh, cook your eggplant in bacon fat. You know, you put whipped cream on your fruit. Uh, this is the real purpose of, of these foods. Um, the kind of joke I tell. Uh, listen, I'm not against fruits and vegetables. If you saw my sh uh, shopping cart um, when I do go to the market, uh, it looks like I'm a vegetarian. There's so many fruits and vegetables in there. But um, they're mostly water. And I am under no illusions that these are healthy. I mean, are nutrient-dense foods. And they're also very expensive. I remember checking out the supermarket one day, and I had all my fruits and vegetables in there. And the man behind me said, lady, did you win the lottery? You know? He, he, most people can't afford to eat uh, fruits and vegetables, a lot of fruits and vegetables. I, I totally agree. I mean, we, we went for a period of being very dominant in fruits and vegetables. I've, I've, I've never gone vegetarian, but there's, there was a, you know, conditioning, uh, kind of health washing that, you know, really should be loading up all the fruits and vegetables from the, you know, the sweet potato starches all the way throughout the, all the greens, etc. And it would cost an absolute bomb. Yeah. And of course, of course it does, right? It's, it's 365 day a year availability of foods, which otherwise would only have been available for a fraction of the year in our right. locality. So you're going to pay for that. You're going to pay for it. Although I will say this, that uh, these fruits and vegetables that are coming from far away, they come in on passenger airlines. 
There's no special planes for them. So I think it's actually pretty efficient the way they get to to us. And I always, and I go into the grocery store and see all the fruits and vegetables. Actually, when I go to the health food store, I, I get tears in my eyes. This is so beautiful. It's a miracle that we can have them. And they're actually brought to us in a fairly efficient way. It's a miracle. It's a miracle of modern life. So, uh, you know, we need to appreciate that. At the same time, we need to uh, understand that most fruits and vegetables need to be prepared in a certain way. I'm very concerned about people making juices with raw kale or raw chard or having a raw spinach spinach salad. Um, These uh, leafy greens need to be cooked. Mm. And of course, same goes for preparation of quinoa and legumes, beans, etc., Right. The beans need to be soaked a long time and cooked a long time. Even the green beans need to be cooked until they're tender. And then, of course, served with lots of melted butter. <laughs> so do fruits and vegetables uh, offer more nutritional density than animal-based products? I, I know the answer, but, no. but, but, but we're led to believe they are more nutritious. Where have we been misguided so well, they do it. Uh, it's called, I call it the old calorie trick. So they do it by uh, saying, for example, let's just say um, uh, uh, calcium per calorie. Okay. Okay. And of course, there's ha- hardly any calories in fruits and vegetables. They're mostly water. Uh, but what they're not telling you is that to get the calcium you need, you'd have to eat way more of these fruits and vegetables than you ever possibly could. And think of the cost that would be. So people don't eat calories. They eat food. And we need to do it by weight, by 100 grams or Mm. by pound or whatever. Because then you get the true uh, view of what's in these foods. And when you do that, meat, most animal foods are 100 times more nutritious than fruits and vegetables. And the organ meats are another 100 times more nutritious. Mm, it's, a, it's a bit of a sleight of hand, isn't it? It's because, it is. Because of yeah. the, the, as you say, the, the incredibly low calorie value of most fruits and vegetables, exactly. excluding wheat and, you know, the, the kind of pastas or right. that kind of stuff. But, you know, the kind of things that we traditionally think of fruits and vegetables, yeah. excluding the starches, very low calorie yeah, content. Yeah. Um, right. I, I do call it the, the calorie trick. Mm, that makes sense. That makes sense. But, Here's, here's another question around around this uh, nutritional density aspect. I know you, you speak about fat-soluble vitamins and you need fat in order to be able to gain access to those uh, vitamins. They're in saturated mm-hmm. fat. They're in animal-based nutrition. You talk about uh, organ meats and how they're superior from a density perspective of yep. these vitamins than, than other, other foods we can choose. I... I've, I've I've wondered a few times whether we could eat too much nutrition, too much density, not calories, but, you know, too much vitamin, vitamin A or too much vitamin K. Like, can we get sick? Is it wrong to always want more? Well, I, um, I hear what you're saying. Um, and there's been a lot of concern about vitamin A overload. Uh, just to go back to the Western Price for a minute, Dr. Price's big focus was on these fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, and K. And it is the Weston Price Foundation that's brought these vitamins to the fore and made people aware of them. Now, what we always teach is it's very dangerous to take these vitamins by themselves. If you take vitamin A, 
and people are getting a lot of vitamin A in food, in processed foods, it can cause a deficiency in vitamin D. Uh, same with vitamin D. People are taking, you know, three to 5,000 units a day uh, without the supporting vitamin A. And this is very, very dangerous. And a lot of groups are promoting these vitamin D supplements. Mm. You know, we're big on cod liver oil because cod liver oil is a great source of vitamins A and D. We only recommend the natural cod liver oils, which have the natural vitamins in them, uh, in a good ratio because the um, most cod liver oil brands on the market are highly processed and that destroys all the A and D. So they're adding synthetic back in. So please use our shopping guide or go to our website to see the brands that we recommend and where you can get them. But we do recommend cod liver oil because it is very hard in this, in the Western world to get enough A and D the way the traditional cultures um, had them. And then the third vitamin is vitamin K, which uh, you also need to support the A and D. This is kind of triumvirate of vitamins. And vitamin K, uh, Dr. Price gave something called butter oil, which was centrifuge butter that concentrated the vitamin K in the oil. But plenty of grass-fed butter, egg yolks, uh, cheese, aged cheese is a wonderful source of vitamin K. And then the poultry fats, so duck, um, goose and chicken. This is why we need to eat the chicken with the skin and the fat so we get the, the vitamin K. Okay. Okay. So I, I'm not, I don't recommend supplements of these vitamins. Uh, I recommend cod liver oil, natural cod liver oil, which is a food, and then food sources. And the nice thing is that these foods tend to have all of the vitamins together, which is what you want. And they've got the right kind of ratios. Yes. But if you look at liver, for example, I know it's been touted as like the superfood because of yeah. its just density of yeah. nutrition. Yes. Would it, yeah. would it, could you could you make yourself sick having too much? Like if you yes. went to town with with liver and you said, I'm going to have liver every day and I'm going to have like a big portion every day. Could you have too much? Yeah, yeah you could get vitamin A toxicity from that. So okay. uh, beef liver, uh, liver of ruminant animals is very high in A and has almost no D. And I had a very interesting conversation once with a Hungarian lady. And she said, you know, we ate liver once a week when I was growing up, but we only ate it if we had cooked it in lard. We felt that there was something missing if we didn't cook the liver in lard. Mm -hmm. Well, what's in the lard? Lard is a wonderful source of vitamin D. So when they cooked the liver in lard, they were getting that balance of A and D. Uh, this is one of the reasons I really am um, partial to poultry liver, chicken, goose, duck, etc., because poultry liver is the most well-balanced liver. It's got A, D, uh, and K in it. It's, so it's easy to assume you need beef just because it's got higher numbers, bit, you know, bit mm -hmm. bigger percentages, but you're saying yeah. the balance is, is better in, in, in poultry. Right. It's harder to get clean poultry liver, though. The, if you buy calf's liver... Uh, the calves in this country are outdoors for six months of their lives. So that calf's liver is a nice, clean food. Okay. Uh, but again, you want to balance it with the vitamin D. When uh, we, The family dog that we had for many years, I gave him a little bit of liver every day and a pork chop. <laughs> pork chop. So there's Amazing a lot of vitamin life. D in the, in the pork chop. <laughs> so he was getting his, his balance of A and D. Oh, fantastic. Well, um, I've got... I think we should close on 
child nutrition. You mentioned it yeah. up front, and I know it's close to your heart. It's close to mine too. Uh, a little bit of context. Um, we as a family, I think this is quite normal for most people. You start with, it, I, I, I find that people transforming their diet typically starts with them realizing they're kind of getting a bit broken typically and you know that usually happens in the 30s as your body starts to let yourself down a bit uh, you start fixing up your diet and if you've got young kids you don't necessarily assume you're going to do the same thing for them you know they yes, they like they, what they like you know they like their yeah. sweets their cakes their you know all their carbs you know their, their breakfast cereals exactly yeah. exactly they've been advertised to like the food they like and when we as a family decided to have a bit of a you know, ransack of the food cupboard, like really get rid of stuff and start to transition into a, a more wholesome diet that we were following as as parents. We did have a lot of kind of angst and pain internally because we, yeah. we, yeah. We, we felt that we were taking away part of their childhood by taking away all the things that they'd been conditioned to love. Talk to me about both child you know what children need and how to how to overcome that because there's so much advertising to suggest kids should love the foods that we've always given them over the last 50 or so years and it's just not good stuff oh i think one thing is to be very cunning and keeping them away from the advertisements i know my daughter and her husband have little um ipads for their children that they program themselves so they can watch their cartoons or whatever and never see an ad. I, I don't think my grandchildren ever have ever seen an ad for food. So that's one thing you can do. But of course, uh, it's always easier to start with the healthy diet than change it later. And this is a big a part of our message is that this period of formation and growth in children is absolutely critical for supporting with nutrient-dense foods. So you start the diet six months before conception. Uh, you continue the nutrient-dense foods during pregnancy, during lactation. And your first foods for babies are not rice cereal and applesauce. They are pureed liver and egg yolks, two of the most nutrient-dense foods that you can give a child. You get them off to a really good start, and then you gradually introduce other foods. And you know, these foods don't have to be too weird. I'm a big advocate for just preparing comfort foods the right way. So we, when my family was growing up, we had a lot of meatloaf. I hid some liver in the meatloaf and they mm -hmm. never knew. You know? But I made a really wicked meatloaf that everybody loved. Uh, we made fried chicken. I fried it in lard. I made a lot of enchiladas and Mexican food, um, uh, tacos and things. <clears throat> And the children didn't even know that there was uh, organ meats in, in there, hidden in there. So, and they had eggs and bacon for breakfast. What, you know, what's not to like about eggs and bacon? Damn right. They did a lot of uh, soaked oatmeal and they ate the oatmeal with um, cream or butter. A wonderful uh, way to start the, the day. So, and, and they, I, another thing. So lunch, okay. Um, I made their lunches, but you don't want those lunches to look too weird or the children will make fun of them. So I did use white bread for the lunches, a, a good quality white bread, preferably sourdough. And they had for their lunch, just normal sandwich. They had salami or cheese or tuna fish or, you know, um, good, good, wholesome uh, food for lunch, but not too weird because uh, you don't want the kids to, you know, tease them. 
And what did he do first, sweets and treats? Uh, I tried not to have them in the house, but I did make desserts uh, about twice a week. Made a you know dessert with low sugar dessert. Also have a wonderful recipe for almond cookies that uses a natural sweetener and lots of butter. It's made with arrowroot and not wheat flour. And that was the kind of go-to dessert for their lunches. So they always had a cookie. It looked like a normal cookie. Nobody could tell that <laughs> it had butter and, and, and you know, uh, Rapidura or something like that. Yeah, we, we make our, our kids, I say we, trying to mm -hmm. take ownership. My wife makes yeah, a, a lovely eaten mess, uh, you know, like whipped up double cream, a couple of go. meringues, you know, some berries. Yeah. Kids love it. But you know yes. what? what's so, so cool is that our kids have gone from hardly ever having touched any red meat for maybe five, six years. Uh, my eldest is nine. Um, to now, they get so excited to have steak. It's the yeah. only thing they ask for. If they're given an option, it's like, have steak, steak. Wherever oh, we well, go, wherever at our home. That they they they've just fallen in love with the taste, the texture, and they clearly feel good with it. They have loads of eggs. Oh, yeah, it's it's yeah. great. It's not that difficult, but the transition. It really a bit isn't. Tough. It really is. And another thing, and I I teach this in classes. You can really keep your food costs down if you learn to make leftovers. And for example, um, usually once a month I made leg of lamb. And by the way, leg of lamb is not an expensive meat. It's you know seven or eight dollars a pound here. We'd have the leg of lamb. The children loved that leg of lamb dinner with the gravy and the potatoes mm. and everything. And then I could take the leftover lamb and make a curry or a soup. And we had that lamb for four days in a row. So you had three other free meals from the uh, the uh, leg of lamb. Same with the rib roast. You know, that's an expensive item. Of course, they love the, the roast beef. But then you can make hash and spaghetti sauce and all sorts of things with the leftover meat. Oh, that's great. That's great. I, I realize there's one other question I wanted to ask you. So apologies okay. for kind of rewinding back to it. Okay. Uh, we spoke about things that you probably want to control, right? The seed oils, eliminate wheat, yeah. being controlled of at least, you know, how it's processed, have good yes. stuff, sourdough yeah. fermented, etc. Um, of course, refined carbs is is really an extension of that discussion. Processed food has got the seed oils. So try and do your best to to keep away from a bunch of those. But Soy. We haven't spoken about soy, and I know you 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 guys have campaigned against soy quite hard, both in infant formula and generally the the explosion of soy in a lot of our foods and kind of fake meats and tofu, etc. What's your position on soy? Right. Uh, let me just go back to what you were saying first, and then I'll get to the oh, soy. Go for it. Yeah. About children, you know, you have to be very careful when you're raising children. Of course, you want a nutrient dense diet for them, and that means making foods that are delicious, that, um, you know, that they like. And I think you can't be too um, perfectionist with mm -hmm. your children. And they're going to get some junk food. They're going to get some sugar. They're going to get some white flour. There's just no way you can prevent it you unless you lock them in a closet and they turn out to be really weird people. So <laughs> I just, just want to say that you can't be too strict. Just hope that you are protecting them with the nutrient dense diet that you're getting them. Okay, it's, I just want to get that off my give, chest. Give them, give, them the pro, give them the appreciation of what great food tastes like and allow exactly. them to have access to the other foods. And hopefully their instincts follows the nutrient density. And I've, we found that that's the decision our kids are making, albeit we haven't eliminated other stuff, but they are mm -hmm. massively reduced. And 
I just feel like they're kind of making a decision for themselves, which is beautiful. Yeah, and especially if they know, you know why. Okay, soy. So we were a lone voice for many years speaking out against the dangers of soy. Now, soy is a toxic bean. It was always considered toxic in Europe and, excuse me, in Asia until they figured out how to ferment it. And it was a very long fermentation that gets rid of some of the toxins, but not all. And that's why in Asia, soy is used as a condiment. It is not a main source of protein. Uh, we were very concerned about the products, the very processed products made with soy protein, soy protein isolate. And why were they doing this? Because 80% and yeah, I think about 80% of all oil in the world's food supply, or at least in the Western food supply, is soybean oil. And after they have extracted the oil, they've got this high protein toxic sludge left. And the big push for soy foods was a push to sell this waste product. And they figured out how to process it to make it into a white powder and then make this white powder into all these different foods, including infant formula. Uh, we have been very concerned about this uh, and have spoken out against it. For one thing, soy is very high in estrogens. It's 10 times greater in estrogens than the next closest food, which is peas, which are considered an anti-fertility food in, in themselves. So in the formula, if you're eating a lot of soy, you're flooding the bloodstream with lots and lots of estrogens. Uh, secondly, soy causes thyroid problems. It is um, to extremely toxic to the thyroid. And third, soy is very difficult to digest. Now, we've had a situation in the last uh, 20 years, starting in actually 2003, so last 15 years, uh, prison in uh, the prison system in Illinois stopped serving meat and they served them a so-called healthy planet-saving plant-based diet, mostly soy. So we had this isolated population on a high soy diet and the results were catastrophic. Uh, many, many developed thyroid problems that made them incapable of working when they came out of prison. They would always be on disability. They um, developed terrible digestive disorders, <clears throat> or di bloody diarrhea, terrible constipation, um, you know, stomach upsets, lots of gas. <laughs> this is in a prison now, okay? And uh, so, um, and they developed, uh, many of the men grew breasts, uh, and they called it chemical castration. So the results were absolutely disastrous. And it was very clear that the soy was doing this. Now, we had a lawsuit against the prison system, which we did not win. We wanted an injunction against the serving of soy. But in the end, we did win because at the beginning of 2019, at the beginning of this year, they stopped all the soy and the men are getting meat again. And ironically, what the men get is a lot of organ meats because they get these meat byproducts made into these patties. And it's actually a pretty good diet for them. So the soy has stopped. Uh, they still complain about the food because it doesn't taste very good. But um, it is a healthy diet, which they, uh, the soy diet was not. But so soy is everywhere, right? I mean, in, in a, so much of the kind of vegetarian or, or meat alternative products, you've got tofu and kind of soy-based ingredients. It's, and then you've well, got the whole infant formula thing as well. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah. Veggie burgers would be this Impossible Burger, which has gotten a lot of 
fanfare is based on soy. Um, and so we actually made a big dent in the soy industry. Um, they were predicting by now $8 billion worth of sales, and it's only been about $4 billion. And that includes all the soy that's going to institutions. I think the this new Impossible Burger and the big push again for soy is because they can't serve it in the prisons anymore. The prisons are saying, no, it just makes the men too sick. By the way, in Illinois, when they started the soy in 2003, they also served it to the women. The women stopped menstruating and went on a hunger strike and they sent the doctors down and they said, okay, no more soy for the women. So the women only had the soy diet for about six months, but the men had it for over 15 years. And this this kind of news or this discussion is a bit of a gut punch to people on vegetarian diets because it is yes. a fairly dominant aspect of vegetarian diets yes. and vegan diets. And by the way, you mentioned the Seventh-day Adventists, and now we're finding out just what a huge influence that the Seventh-day Adventist dietary philosophy has had on our own dietary guidelines. And the Seventh-day Adventists were the people who developed soy milk and all of these soy foods. Uh, they have a big food company, and uh, you know they, they they sell these processed soy foods. So needless to say, you don't have soy in your diet. <laughs> I have a little bit of naturally fermented soy sauce. Okay, okay. That's it. That's it. And we, by the way, on our farm, we don't give any soy to our animals. We're completely soy-free. I'm concerned about these proteins getting into the milk and cheese and meat. Now, um, people have said, well, Sally, why don't you come out with a big statement against feeding soy to animals? I would like to see the soy discontinued gradually because I think it would be too disruptive if the farmers all of a sudden had to find an alternative. Mm. And that's mainly um, pork and poultry. Pork and poultry, yes, because cows are mostly given corn. Yeah. I'm not saying saying that's good, but um, the, the... uh, pork, poultry, and fish. Oh, pork, poultry, of course, fish. yeah. And yeah, and you know, this is one of the reasons we're told to eat pork, poultry, and fish, or certainly uh, poultry and fish, uh, because it's a they eat a lot of soy. Subsidizing cow- or supporting the industry. Yeah, cows not so much, oh. and uh, pork as, is a lot of it. As as you said at the beginning of this conversation, when you tell the truth or you hit home with some hard facts it can come across a bit conspiratorial and a bit wacky, can't it? And this conversation I know is going to hit some people hard and they're going to be skeptical slash cynical that, you know, that some of these, you know, superfoods or important foods to their diet, uh, we're either dismissing or putting some caution to. Um, But everything I've heard so far, I've, you know, I've heard validated and read in multiple places uh, you, you seem pretty much bang on. So I appreciate you sharing this message and continue to drive a discussion of not trying to eliminate like whole food groups. You're just trying to exactly. tell the truth around nutrient density. Yeah. We, we like to say there's no, there's no renunciation with our diet. It's all there. You can have fats, meat, grains, dairy products. Uh, you, we are big advocates for plenty of salt in the diet mm. and uh, even sweets to a certain extent. So there's no food group left out. It's just how these animals are raised and how the food's prepared that makes such a big difference. Got it, got it. Thank you so much for your time today, Sally. Um, What would be fantastic now is maybe if we can uh, let the 
guys know obviously where to to find the where foundation but also the the website is fantastic i must admit i mean there's just so much on there millions of articles by the looks of things and just loads of places to click and go into where do you start well start with westonaprice.org our website and um we are very proud of this website everything we've ever published in our journal is on the website plus lots more uh, all our brochures are there and it's all free i have said i don't want anyone to have to pay for this information. Now, I hope that when you see this information, you'll have a huge guilt trip and say, you know, I need to support this and then become a member. Okay. <laughs> but uh, we don't charge people for this information. It's too important to, to get it out to the world. So westonaprice.org, we have a second website, realmilk.com, which talks about raw milk and where to get it and helps you find it. Great. Uh, and by the way, we have a huge uh, local chapter system. So if you go to our local chapter page, you can find a chapter you and they keep a list, a food resource list of where to find these foods, especially people are especially looking for raw milk. So that's Weston A. Price. And then my own website is uh, nourishingtraditions.com. And um, all my books are out there. If it starts with nourishing, it's probably by me. Yeah, I've checked <laughs> it out. You've, you've, you've nourishing got traditions. There's a tr nourishing traditions cookbook for children. There's the nourishing traditions book of baby and childcare, and then nourishing broth, nourishing baths, and nourishing diets. So, Fantastic. I've got a on the word nourishing. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to tuck in because they do look great. Um, but just getting back to where do people start? So, I it can be a bit daunting when you go to a site that's, you know, it's been around for a while oh, okay. and there's so much content. It's got the weight of content. The search facility, for example, is fantastic. But someone who's just found Western A Price um, org, what, what do where do they go? Where's the, where do they kind of initiate themselves with the information you've got to offer? Well, first of all, there is a beginner's tour of the website. Okay. So that's one place. We have a great little booklet it's our alternative to the dietary guidelines. It's called Healthy for the number four, Life. And it's written about a ninth grade level, 100 pages long, uh, very colorful, easy to read with recipes. So you can order that from the foundation, Healthy for Life. And finally, our main brochure, I always tell our members, please read the main brochure once a year because it lists our dietary guidelines, talks about Weston Price, and that you can order from the website, or if you become a member, of course, we send it to you. Fantastic. I'll make sure I'll get all of these links into the show notes, Sally. You've been an absolute privilege and a delight and just insightful, as I'd expect. Is there any anything you haven't said that you wish you would have said? <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, I, I think what I want to emphasize is the importance and the responsibility we all have as adults of bringing healthy children into the world. So if you are going to have children, uh, you need to study up um, with our website, with my book on childcare, however you wanna do it before you get pregnant. You know, start before you get pregnant and then continue through your pregnancy. And I promise you, you will be so delighted, so proud of your children. And we need these healthy children. Um, you know, today, one in two children has a dis disability in this country. I, I don't see how our civilization is going to continue uh, with such poor health in our children today. Uh, 
So really the emphasis is on children and may, maybe, you know, you're past having children, you don't want to have children. Well, then you can help educate and support those people who are having children. And the guys matter too, right? It's not just about the ladies. Yeah. Yeah. And the guys too. And by the way, this diet that you're eating to have a healthy baby uh, will make your husband happy <laughs> and healthy <laughs> and uh, even tempered. I think that's another important point. So, yeah, it's good for the whole family. I agree. I agree. Our, our family is, is so happy we have a diet that I think matches many of the principles and tenets of your wise traditions principles so yeah big thumbs up from us thank you again okay. sally um I thank hope you so you much for having me have yeah. a great week and let's okay. keep in touch and i'll make sure that yes. everyone knows how yes. to find you and all your resources yes and send me your, the link to this interview and we'll make sure we get it on our facebook page and on my uh, website as well oh that's fantastic thank you so much sally oh what a wholesome, lovely conversation with Sally. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed that. And I felt that she delivered so much value in the hour or so that we were speaking. And so much we can take away and deploy it immediately with a dieting set of principles, which, quite frankly, are easy. The food that tastes amazing, that we instinctively love, enjoy and embrace. And at the same time, you're healthy. You're looking after yourself, you're looking after your family, you're looking after your children. So guys, if there's anything else you need to know from this conversation, most of it hopefully should be in the show notes and there are going to be links to the Western A Price Foundation where you can just swat up to your heart is content. So that just leaves me to say that Adaptation is all about providing you with the tools and expert knowledge to help you improve and optimize your strength health and mindset inside and out. Until next time, guys, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might also enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. This is Adapt Nation.